Well, before we start, my uh, friend Eric Bremer is here, and he asked me, he texted me about 10 minutes ago, asked me to make public his apology to MU quarterback Brady Cook for having underestimated his skill at the beginning of the year, and so he just wanted to make that a public apology. So on behalf of Eric Bremer, he apologizes to Brady Cook. If you want to repent of something in the future, you can just text me before I preach, and I'll, I'll make that public for you. Or if I think you should, I'll make that public as well, and hopefully you'll catch up to the apology. Uh, but we are in the middle of a sermon series on the New Testament book of Acts. Acts. It's talking about the acts of the Holy Spirit, the acts of the earliest Christians, the first 30 years of Christianity. If you want to know how Christianity started, then the book of Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament, is a great book for you to read. I was talking to a friend of mine, a law professor at Mizzou, we were talking on Friday, and he said that what he loves reading about the book of Acts, he, that this going through Acts has been really good for him because he remembers that whenever he reads the book of Acts, it, it just reminds him that it reads like something that really happened. It doesn't come across as some sort of myth that developed over time or some made-up story, but when you read it, it has all the signs that you're reading eyewitness account that was gathered together by an intelligent author and he just he says that just the impression of that is just so strong. It just gives me confidence that I'm reading the, something that really happened. And we looked last week at chapter 6. A new character was introduced named Stephen. It's a Greek name, not a, not a Jewish name. And Stephen is introduced uh, as part of a solution to a problem that Keith preached about last week. You can go back and listen to that sermon. It's a really good sermon. But in, in those verses in chapter 6, there's descriptions in three verses. There's a kind of a characterization of Stephen's reputation. And so it's just sort of a collage of three verses. It says in chapter 6, verses 3, 5, and 8, he was known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, says it again. A man full of God's grace and power. I don't know if all the ways you could be described and, and all the ways that we might think what we want our lives to be like, but when I look at that list, it's pretty aspirational. Full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of God's grace, and, and full of God's power. And, and specifically here it says, who performed great wonders and signs among the people. So up until now, that's only been the 12 apostles. But now Stephen is the first, other than the 12 apostles, to do miracles. And I think it's because he, he, because he becomes a kind of apostle to the next group of people. We'll see kind of miraculous things happen every time the gospel reaches a next group of people. And this next group of people is the, are the Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Jews who are from other countries in the Roman Empire that spoke, speak Greek. They were raised thinking Greek speaking Greek, they still speak Greek, they're in Jerusalem, and so now Stephen's kind of this man, a Greek-speaking Jew himself, who's able to reach them, speak their language, knows their customs, knows how they think, and so he has this really powerful ministry, but not every Greek-speaking Jew is impressed. So as often happens, whenever something good happens when it comes to the gospel, there's a counter-reaction. So verse 9 says, Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of freedmen. And this is one of those examples how you kind of know you're reading history 
because there's really no good reason for that synagogue to be mentioned specifically. It's just the eyewitness account that was said, yeah, it was a synagogue of freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Now, that's Turkey. That's not the Asia we think of, who began to argue with Stephen. The great thing about it is arguing is awesome. They're, they're dealing with his ideas by presenting their ideas, and they're having public debate. But the problem is, it says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So what they began to notice is as they are debating publicly their beliefs versus Stephen's beliefs, their view of the world versus how Stephen is preaching about the world, they're finding that because of the wisdom God's Spirit is giving him that they're every time Stephen speaks and argues, he persuades more and more people that he's right. So, so they end up doing what people do in our culture even today. Again, this isn't so true to life even now that if you can't win in the argument of ideas, what often happens is people then attack the person. Because if you can somehow label the person as an enemy of our values as a culture, then it doesn't matter what ideas they present, people are going to just dismiss it because they're dismissing the person. It's an old tactic called ad hominem attack. You just attack the person rather than ideas. Now, Christians should not be involved in ad hominem attack. We should not attack the person. We should keep our argument in the realm of ideas rather than pushing people further and further away from the gospel by attacking them. And it's just what happens is, is that you see that they have to attack Stephen by tactics often use, misquoting him, taking him out of context, adding to his quotes. And so that's what happens. We read in verse 11, they do this to Stephen. It says, then, because they couldn't win in the argument of ideas, they have to attack him. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous. He's a blasphemer. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Well, okay, let's just dismiss everything because he's a blasphemer. So they stirred up the people. It maybe took some time, and they stirred up the elders and the teachers of the law, teachers of the Bible. They eventually seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is this Jewish ruling council. It's the exact same Jewish ruling council that had Jesus crucified. That's not too long after that, so they're probably the same people and so this is an anxious moment. Stephen is being brought before the same people that had Jesus crucified. And he's being brought with some of the same arguments that were used to get Jesus crucified with false witnesses saying all that. So it says, the next verse, they produce false witnesses who testify this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. In other words, the temple is this holy place and against the law. So there was nothing more sacred to a first century Jew in Jerusalem than the temple and the law. If you wanted to get people to turn against somebody, you would convince, convince them that this person is against the temple and against the Hebrew scriptures. And they're not gonna have an opportunity to make an argument because everybody's gonna dismiss them. They're enemies of our culture. And so it says, for we have heard him, they're getting their lies, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, this temple, and change the customs Moses had down to us. There was a little truth in it, right? Because Jesus did teach that he was the fulfillment of the law, and he did teach that the, he supersedes the temple. The temple is 
the, what he, he is replacing the temple. His body, this temple was this embassy of God on earth, the way we connect with God on earth, where sacrifices are made, where we go and, and priests intercede for us and inter, uh, mediate for us. Now Jesus' body, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his resurrected body, his spirit, is the temple on earth. So there's some truth to it, but they had to kind of, that that's not the same thing as being against the temple and against the Hebrew scriptures. So they had to lie about it and all that kind of stuff. Here's, here's the thing, is that they take Stephen, put him before this council, and you would expect him to be anxious, sweating, fearful, feeling threatened. But that's not what they see. It says in verse 15, Luke says, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. They are just trying to intimidate the socks off of him. They're looking at him. They have all the power, and they're looking right at him. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, none of them saw angels. It's not like they're, he looks kind of like that angel I saw two days ago. That's not what that's saying. What they mean when it says his face looked like the face of an angel, there was something supernatural, an aura, a radiance, a kind of radiant peace, a radiant shalom, a radiant confidence, a calm confidence and courage. It wasn't what they expected. And it was so opposite of of their reactions, they are in full limbic mode, that limbic part of your brain, the fight or flight part of your brain that just immediately feels threatened and causes all kinds of feelings to happen and you start saying things you regret, you start doing things out of fear. It keeps you alive, but it can also mess you up and mess up your relationships. It kind of is the reason why some of us have this low-grade anxiety because we can't quite get out of our fight or flight and these people are stuck in it, but, but not Stephen. He's got this face of an angel. And so they bring him before the council and they have all these false witnesses say their thing and then they say, Stephen, what do you got to say for yourself? Kind of like they did with Jesus. But Stephen doesn't defend himself. What Stephen does is he spends, well, chapter seven, verses one through 50, all those 50 verses, he spends going through the entire 2,000 years of Jewish history and he shows the one pattern that's always consistent. Every time God raises up somebody to speak for God, to advance God's purpose in some way, all the people are against him. And they try to silence them. They try to kill them. They try to arrest them. And that's always been the pattern, he says. And he goes through all the stories, how that's always been the pattern. And then he says, and you did the same thing when you killed the Messiah. So instead of Stephen defending himself, he's actually turning the tables and he's putting them on trial. And, and so here's the thing. We, we are told that he was filled with the Spirit. So what he ends up saying at the end of this whole thing is pretty harsh. It's not a tactic we would use today if we were going to try to persuade somebody. We wouldn't probably use this tactic. I don't recommend it. But being filled with the Holy Spirit, he's obviously saying something to these Jewish rulers who had Jesus crucified that the Holy Spirit wants to say to them. And here's the thing. He has the courage to say it, knowing probably what's going to happen. So let's listen to what he says. Verse 51, he says to them, you stiff-necked people. 
Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. In other words, to be circumcised in the Hebrew scriptures was to be part of God's covenant believing people, to have your male children circumcised. And to be uncircumcised became a euphemism for you're an unbeliever. So he's saying, you stiff-necked people, you're still like an unbeliever in how you hear things, what you think, what you want in your heart. And he goes on, you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? He goes on, they they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the coming of Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law, the Hebrew scriptures, that was given through angels, but talking there about the Ten Commandments specifically, but have not obeyed it. He goes on, he says, when the members, Luke says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. So their reaction is this emotional fight or flight attack. And, and, and feeling threatened. And so they go into this whole limbic meltdown where they're having this, they're gnashing their teeth, they're furious, they're losing their emotional control. And it goes on and it says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. This is a vision, God, not everybody else has seen this, just, just Stephen, it's a vision God gave him. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It goes on. At this, they, again, in limbic meltdown kind of chaos, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. Just picture this. They're just covering their ears like a kid and yelling at the top of their voices so they don't have to listen to him, so nobody else can listen to him. They're trying to shout him down. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. So understand what stoning is. They're, they're, they're bludgeoning him to death with rocks and stones. It's a bloody, messy, horrible thing to watch. And they're doing it. And so at, it goes on and says, while they were stoning him, they're actively killing him in a most brutal way. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus. Now here's the thing. I put that in yellow because I just want us to understand what Stephen's going to pray are two things that Jesus prayed on the cross. When Jesus prayed them, it says he prayed to the Father. When Stephen prays them, it says he's praying to Jesus. This is one of the New Testament ways of showing you that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is the same as God. He's God. So when Stephen prays, he prays, because nobody ever in the Bible, rightly so, ever prays to anybody but God, ever in the Hebrew Scriptures or the New Testament. So when Stephen prays, he prays to Lord Jesus And then he says what Jesus said on the cross. Receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Something similar to what Jesus said. When he had said this, he fell asleep. That's the end of the story of Stephen in Acts. But here's the thing. It's not the end of the story of Stephen, right? Falling asleep, that's different than he breathed his last and he was gone. He was dead. See, it's such a weird contradiction between them bludgeoning him to death with stones. It's an incredibly violent way, to, bloody way to die, horrible thing to watch. They are brutally killing him, bludgeoning him to death with stones. And Luke says, and he fell asleep. 
this kind of peaceful. I mean, the older you get, the more how, remember, you know how it is now, those of you who are kind of my age or even in your 40s, it's just awesome when you can fall asleep. Just that feeling of falling asleep. It's just like, oh, this is great. And then you wake up if you had a good night's sleep. That's the, that's the way the Bible's describing death for those who follow Christ. We don't want to miss this. I mean, this is, this is how Jesus described death. It's how the New Testament describes death in all, in all these epistles. And we don't want to miss what the New Testament is telling the follower of Christ about death. No matter how you die, no matter what the worst case scenario, it's like falling asleep. It's an impermanent kind of thing. It's a peaceful kind of thing. It's almost a pleasant kind of thing. And here's the thing. It's your body is falling asleep, so to speak, impermanent sleep as a euphemism, as a figure of speech, and your spirit is going to be with Jesus. You're consciously uh, with Jesus. I imagine time goes by differently there, really fast. But your spirit goes with Jesus. Your body is, figuratively speaking, asleep. And so here's what the Bible's telling you, and here's what the story of Stephen is telling you. Your worst-case scenario as horrible as a death that you might die. However your life makes its way toward that moment and as, as horrible of a death that you might die, the worst case scenario for you at the end is that you just fall asleep. No matter how horrible it looks, in reality, the way reality is that you can't see, you're just falling asleep. Your body is just falling asleep and your spirit is going to be with Jesus. And that is the worst case scenario. I mean, no matter, the, the, the way you die is the worst case scenario. And this is the end. And then you have a resurrection. Your spirit is with Jesus. So Stephen knows this is going to happen. I mean, how could he not? This is the same people who are going to have Jesus crucified with the same charges and same trumped up kind of false witnesses that Jesus at Jesus's trial but he was told by the holy spirit to just let these people have it you stiff-necked people you're like unbelievers you think like an unbeliever you you want what an unbeliever wants and you always resist the holy spirit and he's letting them have it and he knows what's going to happen to him that just imagine the courage the courage required sometimes to be a follower of Jesus. The courage required sometimes to be a follower of Jesus who's not backing down at the intimidation of those who want to intimidate you. And he says it. He gets stoned and he falls asleep. But why did he have that courage? Why was he willing to do it? Well, Arthur C. Brooks he is a, a sociologist at Harvard and he's, have, he's had these articles in the Wall Street, excuse me, the New York Times uh, over the last few years on things. And he's a sociologist that's recently written a book with Oprah. And I heard him interviewed on this podcast, the Rich Roll podcast. It's a really super interesting conversation. But he's talking in there at, this, at a moment in there about when he has to deal with, you know, he's talking about the mental illness in our culture, the anxiety in our culture. And he says it comes from having a, a, a sense of um, a crisis of meaning. When people have a crisis of meaning, that's when relationships fall apart, anxiety takes over, we sort of get into our limbic system or depression or whatever. That's what he's talking about in this podcast. 
And he says, people have a crisis of meaning when they don't have an answer for them, when they don't have an answer to two questions. You're going to have a crisis of meaning if you don't have an answer that's satisfying, at least to you, to these two questions. And here's they are. The first question is this, why are you alive? If you don't have an answer, a good answer to that question, why are you alive? You're going to have a crisis of meaning in your life. The second question is, for what would you be willing to die today? Today. Is there something you would be willing to die today for? What is it? If you don't have something, you're going to have a crisis. Of, this is what he says. You're going to have a crisis of meaning. If you don't know why you're alive and for what you would die for today, he says, that's when you're gonna have mental health issues. That's when you're gonna have anxiety breakdown. That's when you're gonna have limbic system chaos in your life, relational chaos in your life. Because people have to have answers to those two questions. See, Stephen had an answer to those two questions. They're melting down, furious, gnashing their teeth, plugging their ears, yelling at the top of their lungs, eventually throwing rocks. But verse 55, Luke describes Stephen this way. He says, but Stephen, they're having this meltdown, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, honestly, I think that vision is given to Stephen, not for Stephen, but for us, so that we can read that passage and talk about it. I mean, all throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history, people have been reading this passage and talking about it. Because, see, I think what this is teaching is not, this is not something Stephen, oh, that's what it is. Okay, that's what my death is, no big deal. Because he already had, it says at the beginning of the chapter, he was already having the face of an angel in the midst of a really dangerous situation. He was already filled with wisdom, filled with God's Holy Spirit, filled with God's grace, and filled with faith. So this didn't give him any of that. He already had all that. This is for us. And the thing is, is that he already knew this was his reality always. Always his reality. Always the reality that the glory of God is the overarching presence in every moment in your life. The God who created this universe, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, the God of the New Testament, the God that Jesus shows us is a God of infinite power who could create this universe, infinite wisdom, infinite intelligence to create this universe, infinite love to become human in the person of Jesus and willingly suffer to take death upon himself, your sin upon himself, so that he can reboot you with your own resurrection in the kingdom of God. A God of infinite love, a God of infinite grace, a God of infinite mercy, a God of infinite goodness. That's not new to Stephen. He already knew what Psalm 23 said a thousand years before. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And surely, certainly, your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. He already knew this. He already knew the glory of God was always present in every moment. He already knew that Jesus was standing at the right hand of God, standing, being involved, standing, ready to receive him, standing, leaning forward because he is actively present and he is focused on Stephen's circumstance always and he is actively focused without being any less focused anywhere else because he's infinite in every moment of your life. 
Jesus is in control. Jesus is present. Jesus is focused on you. He is active in your life. Nothing is happening even if you're getting bludgeoned to death by rocks. Nothing is happening outside of his control and love and goodness. And the worst case scenario that's going to happen to you is you fall asleep and your spirit goes to be with Jesus. Stephen already knew it, which is why he had this confidence. It's it's the difference between, I think the way to put it, is horizontal thinking versus vertical thinking. Horizontal thinking just sees the two-dimensional world. God's not in it. God might be in it, but he's kind of part of the two-dimensional world. And horizontal thinking misses the glory of God, misses the presence of God, misses Jesus standing active, in control, focused. It just sees the circumstances. It just sees people, life, and it just has this, the two-dimensional obstacles in our life become overwhelming. We overinflate people's opinions Our problems become short-sighted because all we can see is the two-dimensional realities. We can't look over anything and see a horizon. So Luke describes this kind of horizontal thinking when he describes what Stephen said to these people in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, just proud toward God because you're just valuing the horizontal because all you think about is the horizontal. You, your hearts and ears are thinking like an unbeliever. What you want and what you hear and how you think is the same mostly as an unbeliever and you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, that's kind of harsh, but I think that's written for you and me to read it and kind of a little bit humble ourselves and say, is that, is that me at all? Am I trapped in horizontal thinking where I'm, I'm stiff-necked toward God, I'm proud, I'm resistant of what I know his will is? I think and I want and I hear things like an unbeliever instead of like somebody who understands the vertical realities? And that's why I'm always resisting the Holy Spirit, the softening of my heart, this prayer before him, all the things the Holy Spirit wants to do in my life, wisdom, faith, grace, power. I'm just resisting it because all I'm seeing is horizontal. So I'm stuck reacting and I'm stuck in anxiety because all I see is the two-dimensional and I'm stuck saying things to people when I get upset because I'm just letting my negative emotions flow out because I can't see the vertical. I can't have the face of an angel. I can't be calm. I can't be courageous. I can't have this confidence that the glory of God is present Jesus is on his throne, he's standing forward, and he's looking at me, and he's in control. But that's what Stephen saw. Let's look at verse 55 again. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up. He wasn't trapped on the horizontal. He looked up, and he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, active, present and in control. You can see the same thing with the eyes of your heart. You can see the same reality that is always true, no matter what's happening. Look up and see the glory of God present and Jesus standing on his throne, active, leaning forward, focused, and in control of everything happening in your life. And you can have the calm courage and confidence that Stephen had. Amen.